Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're updating you on two stories that deserve a follow-up. Later we'll hear about an issue that's been reported on for several years. The latest story by Hartford Current reporter Josh Kovner highlights the fact there are still families in the state who need help caring for a family member with developmental disabilities. There are only so many beds in residential facilities, and when there's no place to turn for help, some parents are leaving their child at an ER. We'll hear more about why a 21-year-old autistic man was left at Manchester Memorial Hospital for more than five months. News stories about emergency departments being used in this way have caught the attention of the Malloy administration and the General Assembly in previous years, but it's an issue that hasn't been resolved. We'll find out why. That's later. First, an update after a deeply troubling story at the state's Connecticut Valley Hospital in Middletown, which treats people with mental illnesses. The maximum security unit, known as Whiting Forensic, will now be split from CVH to focus on a specific patient population and will have a new leadership team. Now, Demas is the state agency that oversees the facility. Commissioner Dr. Miriam Delphin-Rittman is back to explain the changes since that whistleblower complaint brought attention to the abuse of a patient. Later on, we'll hear from a legislator leading the inquiry into Whiting, State Senator Heather Summers. But first, I want to welcome back Commissioner Delphin-Rittman to the show. Nice to see you again. Hi, Lucy. Nice to see you. Thank you for having me back. Um, Since we last spoke, I believe it was in September, uh, another worker had been arrested in this abuse case of Whiting patient William Shahadi, bringing the total number of staff um, or former staff, depending on who we're speaking with, that were charged um, with this uh, felony cruelty uh, because of what happened with that patient. Understand there's another story where four more workers were suspended recently involving the alleged abuse of another Whiting patient. Uh, we invited you back on because of the, the order that was released earlier this month from Governor Daniel Malloy. Um, it's going to separate Whiting Forensic Division from Connecticut Valley Hospital. So walk us through why the separation is necessary. Yeah. You know, so before I get into that, I think it would be helpful just to talk a little bit about CVH in general, because that'll help to provide a little bit of context for the separation and and CVH overall. Um, So CVH, again, is a very large hospital. You know, the American uh, Hospital Directory actually has it listed third in hospitals in Connecticut in terms of the number of staffed beds. We have 616 beds, ranked third behind Yale New Haven Hospital and Hartford Hospital. So it's a big hospital. Um, There are three divisions of CVH, so there's the General Psychiatry Division, the Addiction Services Division, and Forensics. Uh, And and in addition to those three divisions, we also provide physical health care for the patients who are there, uh, for many of the individuals who are there. So it's it's a large, complex hospital. Um, What this allows us to do is it really allows us to create uh, two specific hospitals, uh, one that is focused primarily on forensics, and another that's focused on the the, other, the remaining CVH, it's focused on general psychiatry and addiction services. Uh, so it allows for more specificity of services and programming. Um, and then there are a range of other 
uh, benefits as well, and we can go through those. Um, you mentioned that there are three specific divisions within CVH. Again, uh, this case that came out of a whistleblower complaint where you had uh, multiple staff members within Whiting uh, that knew about the abuse, at least 10 who participated. So this case was the catalyst to separate uh, forensic Whiting Forensic from the rest of the hospital? You know, actually, no. No, the, the two are completely separate. Um, we had been having, I had been having discussions internally with my team um, about the size of CBH and ways we can sort of look at the, at the design and the, and the programming. And so this was one issue that we were discussing anyway, you know, the possibility of separating off uh, Whiting and Dutcher to create a separate hospital. Um, that is actually how it was structured years ago uh, prior to it becoming one hospital. Um, at the same time, we were having discussions with CMS around um, the importance of the hospital remaining compliant with the conditions of participation for the Medicaid program. Um, so between those two conversations, it, it really made sense to do this now. Um, doing this now allows the rest of the hospital to re remain compliant uh, with uh, the Medicaid program. Um, and then it also allows us to create a specific hospital primarily focused on forensics. Um, and this hospital will be comprised of the Whiting Max and then the Dutcher step-down uh, beds as well as all part of one hospital, 229 beds. Uh, we will have a new leadership team, and so uh, that's in process as well. Uh, Dr. Mike Norco uh, has been uh, appointed the interim CEO uh, of the new hospital. Uh, we're convening a natural, national search and, uh, and we'll be forming a, a new leadership team, as you mentioned. Uh, why, a, <clears throat> excuse me, why a new leadership team? Because when I had you on last in September, um, again, it was a whistleblower complaint that brought this uh, abuse of this patient uh, to uh, the attention of uh, you know, Department of Public Health regulators, also uh, officials such as yourself at Demas. You know, I'm just curious about uh, the leadership, even temporarily, that's leading uh, this new facility, Whiting and Dutcher, mm -hmm. separated from CVH. You mentioned Dr. Mike Norco. He was the director of Whiting uh, before this abuse happened to William Shahadi? Uh, no, Dr. Norco was not the director of Whiting uh, when this uh, abuse situation had happened. Uh, Dr. Norco has been connected with, uh, with the department, was the director of forensic services. Um, but he was not the director of the hospital at the time or of, you know, of the Whiting Forensic Division of the, at the time. Um, that individual has been put on leave as well as the uh, one other individual who had a, a fairly high leadership role within the uh, within Whiting at the time. So Dr. Norco's had a, a but a long history with CVH within Whiting. He was back. Uh, he was also involved back in 2007. I think there was a Department of Justice investigation into um, CVH and some of the um, patient care issues then. Yeah, yeah. And so Dr. Norco's role now is different. Now he is he is full time. Uh, he is full time. He is leading the agency. Um, he comes with tremendous uh, expertise in terms of forensic. Uh, psychiatry. Um, he's nationally uh, renowned in this area, has published highly in this area, uh, is well respected by colleagues both here in the state as well as nationally, and just has significant expertise in this area. Um, it is a pleasure to work with him. He's, he is such mm -hmm. a kind, um, respected, compassionate, committed individual and is putting in serious hours, serious hours uh, to work to turn this around. So I am, I am so grateful 
to have him on my team. Let's talk about the climate uh, staff morale uh, within Whiting. Again, uh, you know, it was very troubling to hear so many uh, members of uh, who worked at Whiting knew about this abuse. As you mentioned, uh, you were also uh, angry when you, wa- you watched that video surveillance. I'm just curious with this division now, how many beds you mentioned, uh, maybe just reiterate how many beds will be now at this new uh, Whiting forensic slash Dutcher uh, facility. And what is the staff-patient ratio? Because the Department of Public Health uh, investigators, when they looked into it, overtime was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the, the new hospital will have 229 beds. Uh, so it's a significantly smaller uh, hospital than, you know, when it was combined uh, with all of CVH. So all of CVH has 615 beds. Uh, the remaining CVH will have 386 beds. And the new Whiting Hospital will have 229 beds. So it's a much smaller facility. Um, And in terms of the staffing, the staff, this will have not a significant impact on the direct care staff. Uh, Many of the direct care staff that are working in Whiting and Dutcher will continue. Uh, The the union sort of rules and those pieces that are in place with the union, those will remain. Uh, And so largely it, it creates a separate entity, 229 beds allows us to really, really focus on, you know, forensic-specific policies and procedures and programs and, and, uh, and, and, and actually even, you know, as part of our national search for a director, uh, you know, to, to be able to bring somebody in with, uh, with specific national expertise or specific expertise in forensic uh, psychiatry as that CEO. And, and I think that will help us. Um, this is where we live. Uh, today we're talking with Dr. Miriam Delphin Ripman, again, Commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, known as DEMAS. Uh, DEMAS uh, oversees uh, CVH, which is Connecticut Valley Hospital in Middletown. Uh, an order from the Malloy administration now splits Whiting Forensic and Dutcher from CVH. We're asking the commissioner about some of the changes since a very troubling uh, case was brought to the attention of investigators and reported widely, including by the Heart Hartford Current, uh, the abuse of one particular uh, patient at Whiting. At least 10 staff members were charged with felony cruelty. Um, you know, when we talk about this story, Commissioner, you know, how do you ensure that safety of the patients is going to be the number one priority? Because this is a black eye on Demas that this happened. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's something that we are absolutely focused on. Uh, for one, that, w- you know, we're taking a, a a hard approach on this. You know, this is not, uh, I, I don't want to see this in my system of care. So, you know, in addition to the, thir- the 37 individuals that have been put out on leave, as you know, 10 were arrested, we've officially separated with 23 of the individuals. So 23 are no longer connected to state service and are not on state payroll. Um, I think that sends an important message that zero tolerance, this is not okay. Uh, so that's one piece, you know, really communicating that that uh, this cannot be part of our system. And we're going to act, I'm going to act, my team, we're going to act immediately when things come up uh, that seems like it may be uh, inappropriate or abusive. Um, that's an important part of, of what we're doing. But there are, other, there are lots of other things as well. Um, another thing that we've done is, is we, have, we did immediately actually a review of all other vulnerable, potentially vulnerable patients. Uh, to look for signs of abuse or to look for are there particular individuals we may, we may need to pay particular attention to. Um, we've done that. We saw no other signs of, of abuse, and so that's one thing that we have in place. Um, as you know, the video monitoring, uh, that, that has continued. 
Uh, so, so now you're uh, you have staff, or you've hired staff, someone to be looking at this these tapes absolutely. of a, the Whiting unit. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So we have uh, an outside security company that is viewing Whiting and several other buildings on campus, uh, viewing real time. So real time, the video footage is is moni- monitored. Um, we also though do retrospective reviews, and so we have our state police reviewing uh, the video, and we have managers and. Uh, Dr. Norco himself and, and others are viewing video as well. Um, and the, an important thing is, you know, and I've talked with staff about this, as has Dr. Norco, uh, we're using the video not, not just to try to find things that aren't going well. It's important for us to also let staff know about things that are going well um, and to use the video for teaching purposes. Uh, so Dr. Norco is piloting a program that, that is using video for teaching purposes as well. Um, if you can join the conversation, too, with uh, Commissioner Dolphin Rittman, the number 860-275-7266. Before I take a call, uh, Commissioner, I had asked earlier about uh, staff morale. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had talked earlier in September about a culture of impunity, that this still happened despite uh, you know cameras uh, uh, videotaping uh, the goings-on in this particular uh, whiting unit. But I'm curious now with all the attention on whiting, the fact that um, there now is going to be a separation from CVH. What is staff morale who work there? This is a very difficult population that they, they work with, these patients with severe mental illnesses that have been committed there uh, because of, of uh, committing a, a serious violent crime. Mm-hmm. That's right. I mean, this is very difficult work. It's very difficult work. And, and the staff often talk about that. And so we're paying attention to that. Uh, trying to create more opportunities for staff to be able to talk about their experiences of their work. So we have more uh, town hall meetings, more community meetings with both patients and staff. Uh, Dr. Norco has is, is, um, instituted a number of different trainings that also allow uh, staff to explore their experiences and to learn more about the care. So there's been trauma-informed uh, services and training, code of conduct, and a number of different trainings that allow staff to explore Uh, to increase their competencies, but also to explore their experiences of doing the work. We're getting a a tweet from a listener, David, uh, who writes, the structure of whiting didn't lead to the abuse of Bill Shahadi. The problem is a culture of abuse of staff. How do you respond? You know, I mean, I I think that, that, um, you know, not knowing specifically what that individual is referring to, what I can say is that we pay close attention to staff morale. It's something that we're that we're looking at now. Even um, we conducted interviews with staff uh, to try to get a, a better sense of of their um, experiences and 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 what they felt um, contributed, but also can help to um, improve care and improve the environment in Whiting. Um, we're also developing a, a task force, a, sta- a task force that we're inviting staff to participate in. Um, because see, we we want to hear from them. We want them to be part of the the growth and development process at the new hospital. Um, so we'll be implementing a task force that staff will be part of, leadership will be part of, uh, and and together, uh, planning and and uh, uh, strategic thinking can happen around what will make a difference. I'll take a call now. Kathy's calling from Middletown. Kathy, you're on the show. Good morning. Um, my name is Kathy Flaherty. I am the executive director of Connecticut Legal Rights Project. I'd like to say good morning to the commissioner. Morning, um, Kathy. Hi, how are you? Oh, okay. Uh, I actually am rather delighted to hear, as much as I sometimes rail against uh, developing task forces, I'm wondering if that task force will include 
um, people who also work with patients, will it include patients, um, either folks like from CLRP, um, other independent advocacy organizations, folks like the Public Defender's Office, who all work with people who are at Whiting. And I just want to make one quick point um, before uh, I ask for responses. I just I reiterate this quite often, but not everybody who is at Whiting is there because they've committed a serious crime. Some people are there for competency restoration, which means there's been no proof in a criminal proceeding that they've committed something. We also have civil patients there, too. Thank you, Kathy, for uh, the clarification and also your question. Commissioner. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, Kathy, you know, we're, we're open to what that task force will look like. Right now, we've been in discussions with, with staff, with leadership. Uh, Dr. Norco uh, will be leading that along with another consultant we'll be bringing in from Yale University. And so, you know, we're open to what that can look like. Certainly, there have been discussions of including, uh, you know, some of the members there, as well as maybe even forming, um, you know, other opportunities or creating other opportunities for uh, for patients there to be able to provide input. Um, as you know, there are more community meetings, and I think that's um, an opportunity for real time for the patients as well as staff to be able to provide recommendations around what would be valuable. Um, I see this as a fluid process and, and certainly one where, um, in addition to the main task force, we've had discussions about there being um, subcommittees, you know, subcommittees that work on particular areas. Uh, and so I think there are, are many different opportunities for a range of individuals, including those that you mentioned, Kathy, to be involved. You mentioned Yale. I just wanted a clarification on the, the partnership between Yale and NCVH at Whiting. Um, mm-hmm. Again, we hear so often about uh, the budget, uh, the climate in the state, the fact that there have been uh, budget cuts. They continue to, to be budget cuts to uh, departments that do very important work, safety net or such as Demas. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious about the relationship there. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's been a, a longtime partnership between Yale University and, and the state around, um, you know, the, the work that we do throughout our system. Uh, and so, uh, yes, there, there, ha- there are a number of individuals who currently work at Whiting who are on faculty at Yale, but their time is largely at, at Whiting. And so when you're looking for a new director, again, Dr. Norco will be the temporary director of this uh, new uh, smaller facility uh, combining Whiting and Dutcher, but you're also looking to hire a CEO? Absolutely. Yeah. So we're looking to bring in a CEO. Uh, and, and again, I think that will potentially help us with recruiting. We have actually done searches, three searches over the last three years, trying to find a division director for Whiting Max. And, and it's been tough. It's difficult to recruit. We've interviewed nine people, made two offers, uh, again, through three interview processes, three searches over three years, um, and have not been able to recruit. Why? Why, why is that? Um, you know, I, I think, for one, making the position a CEO position, it's a higher-level position now. So it, now the individual will be at the CEO of a hospital. Um, prior, it, it was several layers down. Not not down, but you know, it, it the individual would have reported to the CEO of the hospital and would have been just a not just, but would have been a division director. Um, now it allows us to recruit for a CEO, which is a higher level position. I think that will help us with recruiting. But this partnership with with Yale and Dr. Norco, so he's paid by Yale, not by the state. Uh, yes, he's paid by Yale. I want to take another call, Rebecca from <coughs> Middletown. Rebecca, go ahead. Yes, I wanted to know if there has been any um, partnership or work with the Commission on Human Rights um, as far as investment. 
I'm sorry, Rebecca. Your Rebecca, your phone is uh, is uh, breaking up. Can you repeat that again? Sure. I wanted to know if there has been any partnership with the Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities as far as investigating the matter and uh, you know looking into the potential civil rights violations of the patients involved. Thank you, Rebecca, for your question. Is the Commission on Human Rights involved in, in, in the, the fallout and investigating how uh, the facility moves forward, Commissioner? Um, so the, the Commission has not been directly involved in, for example, the investigation or, or that sort of thing. Um, we have had discussions with the Commission recently around uh, different trainings that they can offer um, that I think will be valuable for our, for our system and, and for our staff. Well, I want to thank again Dr. Miriam Delphin-Rittman, Commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. Thanks for coming on to explain this split and what happens next. We appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for the invitation. Now, coming up, we're going to hear from the co-chair of the legislature's Public Health Committee about her concerns with this decision to separate Whiting Forensic from Connecticut Valley Hospitals. State Senator Heather Summers will join us after the break. We'll take your calls, too. Whiting and Connecticut Valley Hospital are publicly funded. How do you think the state has handled operations of these facilities? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from the commissioner of the agency that oversees Connecticut Valley Hospital and Whiting Forensic Services. Whiting will no longer be part of CVH under an executive order by the Malloy administration, the full transition expected by the end of this month. Now, this plan is not without criticism. Joining us by phone now is State Senator Heather Summers, co-chair of the Public Health Committee within the Connecticut General Assembly. Senator Summers, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me this morning. You were also back on our show in September after news broke again uh, that you had um, 37 workers at CVH, Whiting specifically, that were suspended. Ted ultimately charged with felony cruelty after the abuse of patient William Shahadi. Uh, What's your take on this new plan by the administration to split Whiting from CVH? Well, um, you know, first, we all learned about this in the Public Health Committee um, from, you know, hearing it in the paper. Quite frankly, I thought that the commissioner should have at least had the, um, you know, the courtesy of letting the public health committee know exactly what the plans were going forward. But in my opinion, this is strictly just an illusion of doing something different, trying to, you know, portray this image of we're going to shake things up, we're going to move things forward. Because right now, Whiting and Dutcher are separate; they are handled separately. They have separate budgets. Whiting and Dutcher are are together because Dutcher is the step-down unit for Whiting right now. So this illusion that we're going to separate them out um, and, you know, make this a wonderful facility is something that I think clearly is an illusion. We are, in my opinion, separating the noncompliance and we are separating and isolating the risk so that we can, um, you know, give the public this impression that we are actually doing something different than we are now. And quite frankly, Whiting and Dutcher are handled separately from CBH. So that's why it's a little disconcerting as far as what we're hearing. Um, specifically, when we were having a public hearing on this incident at Whiting, it was very clear from the commissioner that they wanted this to be just about Whiting, not about CBH, because they were separate. So now we're hearing that we're going to separate Whiting from CBH. So, yes, there might be a CEO at the top that's different, but in reality, that's how it is now. 
And, um, you know, I listened to the interview previously that you were talking with the commissioner. And with all due respect, a lot of this has to come down to Medicaid reimbursement. Um, the Whiting facility has been billing Medicaid or CMS for patients that it should not have been for close to 20 years, it's, it appears. Um, that came out in the public hearing. Um, the human resource person could not tell us how long this, this practice has been going on. That leaves the state at risk because CMS will look for that money to be returned if it has been billing incorrectly. Um, there are certain guidelines under Medicaid where you can only bill for patients under a certain age or over a certain age, um, and they were improperly billing CMS. So if you look at that risk, what would happen, in my opinion, is that CMS would come back, and this is all together, the system, and they'd say, okay, the state of Connecticut has been illegally billing for X amount of years, um, and we want the money back. So if CVH is billing for services, they certainly could try to re re have it uh, returned that way. This happened in our budget this year where Medicaid came to the state of Connecticut, and I think the number was close to $82 million of overbilling. And they said, okay, state of Connecticut, we're not going to pay you this money. We're taking it back because it was, you know, billed improperly. So those are the things I think are at risk here. And my question to the commissioner is how is separating something on paper so to speak, which is already separated, how does that impact the quality of care that's delivered for the patient? I'm concerned about the patients. I'm horrified at what I have seen as far as um, patients that have come forward to the Public Health Committee. I have a volume of letters and materials that have been sent to me either anonymously or by previous union members that have worked there, have retired, that have described in detail the um, non-compliance, the abuse that has gone on in this facility for years where everyone has turned a blind eye because this is a, you know, a community where perhaps people don't care as far as what happens to these folks. I care because, as was mentioned before, not everyone in this facility has committed a crime. There are people that are there um, that are just severely mentally impaired and they have not done anything. So this is not just people that have committed a crime, and that needs to be clarified. There are people that, for some, in one case, uh, I know of an instance of a woman that I actually have met with that was sent to white, Whiting because she was, quote, non-compliant at Dutcher, so they sent her to Whiting. She never committed a crime. She was actually a victim of a crime. So I think that that needs to be, uh, you know, put out in the public much more than it has been. Um, there's this misperception that everyone at Whiting has done something egregious and horrible, and that is not the case. Uh, Senator Summers, in studio with us, I should say, is also Dr. Karen Kangas, recovery advocate, also co-conservator for William Shahadi. Again, this was the, the patient um, uh, that was abused by several staff members, uh, former staff members at Whiting. Uh, Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <clears throat> uh, what's your take on, on this change uh, that uh, the commissioner and Governor Malloy announced earlier this month? Well, my concern is probably the concern of those of us in recovery. I'm, I'm in recovery, and as part of that community, we're concerned that the new leadership and what we do is we really develop the recovery-oriented kind of system because right now I'm not sure that it's fully there right 
and I think uh, they've certainly, since the abuse happened, they've certainly made lots of strides in terms of uh, bringing in people and, and trying to change the climate and trying to change the culture. And I'm afraid that um, that may not go on. And, and right now we have, you know, a strong uh, client rights officer. We have uh, some, um, <clears throat> I know an agency that I was associated with, Advocacy Unlimited, has been asked to do some training with staff um, around recovery and around uh, engagement and around, uh, you know, their own uh, stress in working with people. And I just want people to have that, that chance because if we don't hire somebody that really cares about recovery and cares about hope, um, it's not going to be any better. And sometimes when you go to Whiting, um, you feel like you're going to a prison because to get through the metal detector and the police and all of that, and I've been going for 30 years, so it's not new to me. Uh, and they certainly treat me with respect. But I'm just saying it's it's difficult Why by the time you take off all your jewelry. And certainly for me, that's a big issue. But um, by the time I get there, I wonder, um, is this, you know, um, and then someone was just recently telling me that she can't go on the unit because they are, until her background check is done, and so that sounds like a prison, mm-hmm. not not a not a hospital. And we really want this to be a hospital. I know many people who have been in Whiting and in Dutcher and are really living successful lives in the community. And I can't tell you that enough and stress that enough. And uh, the fact that they can do that, I just think more power to them. And that's what I want. I want people to have that chance to to regain their lives and and regain their their place in society. That's what we need. Karen, you're saying that the the way that Whiting was configured now, it feels more like a correctional setting. Well, kind of. You know, you go through all the, you can't, you know, you have to go through all all of the... um, The, the the metal detectors and all of that and and the last time I, I was just there like maybe last week and then it was whatever the week before and and there was some talk about well maybe if we're a separate hospital maybe and I heard this and I, I hope I would never hear this again and uh, someone said well maybe we can go back to using restraints and seclusion again because you know now it's going to be separate and and uh, I hope that it won't happen, and I don't think under the current leadership that would happen, but we want to make sure that doesn't happen. We've, we've worked hard to make that not part of care. Um, that's punishment, and we're there for wellness, and we're there for, for care. And um, so, yeah, it's very difficult to go and visit somebody. And the, <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, I was out on the uh, courtyard, and I have actually been on television a few times and really have talked about all of the abuse, which should never happen to anyone. And uh, people walked up to me, clients walked up to me, and they said to me, we just want to thank you. And I said, and I did not know them, did not recognize them. And I said, and, and you are thanking me for? They said, we're thanking you for just caring about us. You know, we've been abused, too. And I thought, wow, so we, we need to pay attention. We need to be there. We need to be, you know, have access because, you know, we, we really do. They're a part of our community, and we want them to be a part of our community. And <clears throat> right now I'm involved in helping CVH, and I'm really pleased to do this with uh, five people that are going to be hired that are in recovery. And I think three of them are going to be placed at this new hospital to h- kind of help this environment of recovery because we want people to think there's a there's a there's a reason to be there and there's a reason to get well and there's a reason that that I'm going to get out and and live my life I hope and I want that to be there. Karen, are you optimistic then with all the things that you have just said about commitment to to, to patient safety with wellness with recovery that this new leadership structure uh, that the commissioner outlined is going to get 
get those objectives? Well, you know, quite honestly, I, 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 I don't know that it will unless maybe some of us are on that search committee because I have to tell you the questions I would ask would not be what is your expertise in forensic I would ask what is your expertise in recovery do you understand that people can make have horrible things happen in their lives because of mental illness and or addiction issues and still lead fulfilling lives I know um, you know I've been lucky because I do have a life and boy am I glad that that um, you know I've had some good care I've had great family support I've had um, you know, but I also have a great community, and and I often go back to advocacy unlimited and say, oh, I'm back home with my people because there's that need to be there. There's that need for support. Well, this is where can we I, live. Oh, hold on one second, Senator. Please. This is where we live. I just wanted to make sure that our listeners know that was Dr. Karen Kangas, recovery advocate and co-conservator for William Shahadi. Again, we're talking about this new order by Governor Malloy to split Whiting Forensic and Dutcher into a, a separate hospital from CVH. On the phone with us, State Senator Heather Summers, again, Republican from Groton, co-chair of the Legislature's Public Health Committee. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Senator Summers, go ahead. Yes, I was just going to follow up with what Dr. Uh, Kangas had to say is, one of the things that I found, uh, you know, quite interesting is exactly what she just said. I'm not focused on how many papers um, have been published or what your experience is in forensics, really. I want to know what your experience is in recovery and having people that have been either committed to whiting or sent to whiting have a quality of care so that eventually they can leave and assimilate back into the community. That's what this is about. And I think it's very important that people understand that this facility right now, even though it's separated, even though, you know, it, that has not been clear, it, it's handled separately, vacillates between a prison and a hospital. They call themselves a hospital when you try to get information out of them and they hide behind HIPAA. However, if you go there, it, you really have this feeling of being in a prison. And they have to decide what they want to do. I think it's very important that uh, Whiting Forensic, regardless of its you know, separated with a separate CEO, is licensed by the state of Connecticut as a hospital. It is not licensed right now, and therefore it does not have to comply with everything a regular hospital has to. By doing what they're doing, they are skirting that issue. Um, they have said, well, we will have uh, policies in place that mirror licensure, but that is not the same as licensure. And as far as finding a CEO that can run this facility, one of the things that we need to question ourselves here in the state of Connecticut is, what are we willing to pay a person to run this facility? If you look at the salary requirements or the salary that's available for the CEO of this unit, that could very well be why they can't find a candidate, because the salary for the person who would be in charge of this facility is less, would earn less than some of the FTSs that are union members that are working with patients that don't have this kind of advanced degree. And as far as Dr. Norco is concerned, I find it hard to believe that he is the right choice, seeing as he was in charge of the Whiting facility before 2007. He left right in 2007 when the Department of Justice came in and wrote a scathing report. It's 72 pages on all the things that are wrong with the facility. And that was under his guidance and his jurisdiction. So we're bringing back the person to run a new facility, even though it's interim, and that's the first time that we're hearing it's interim in public health, that was in charge when all these egregious things were happening. So that, to me, um, is not the lightning rod of change that we need here to change the way this community operates, the way the people that work in this facility have their own care, uh, the way we look at overtime, 
the way that we treat the patients and the quality of care that we give to them. And, and that's my big concern. Karen, did you want to respond to what Senator Summers has addressed? I, I actually really uh, agree with Heather. I'm really pleased that you said the things that you did because that's, that's our concern as well. Because um, I have been going to Whiting for probably 30 years, and I've had some, some pleasant experiences, but I've also had some that were not pleasant. I've actually conserved three people that have been at Whiting, and two of them are actually living great lives. But I remember a time going there to see one, and the other person was just there, and he said, you know what, Karen, if you just have a minute, could I have a minute of your time? And I said, of course. And the state police said, absolutely not. And so there's been all that kind of thing, and I think that that to me is not what quality is, and that's not what concern is for people, because he was very quiet and very willing to wait a minute, and, and uh, the police said, absolutely not. And he was totally upset, and he ended up actually in restraints because of it. So that's the kind of thing that I don't want to see happen. And uh, I would agree with you that we really need to look at uh, who the person is and all that overtime. I, I was there one day and somebody I asked the two people that were there, I said, how long have you been here? And they said, both of them said 18 hours. And I said, oh, my goodness, you must be really tired. Would you like me to see if there's anything, you know, anybody that we could get to? Oh, no, we're fine. They're bringing us coffee. We're fine. Well, the fine is not that they're fine. It's, it, you know, the money is going on and, and that's fine. And, you know, nobody at 18 hours can, can do really quality care. You're tired. And uh, people there need somebody to, to care about them and to talk with them. We just have a couple more uh, minutes left. I wanted to go back to Senator Summers again. She's co-chair of the legislature's Public Health Committee. Um, you held a hearing back in November. Um, another session is almost upon us. What do you want right. to see addressed moving forward, Senator Summers? Well, I will tell you that I have sent two re uh, requests to my co-chairs. Um, I have been contacted by numerous members of the Public Health Committee who, by the way, um, you know, the commissioner has made these changes in the video monitoring procedure since uh, the first, you know, allegations of abuse have come forward and they have an outside agency um, reviewing the videotapes. And there has been yet another abuse case where people have been, um, you know, put on suspension and are under investigation for abuse after the changes were made, after people were retrained. So between that and the executive order that came from the governor, who, by the way, has been silent on this, and as Martin Luther King said, sometimes silence is betrayal, and I feel that that's the case right here. Um, we have been, um, or I have been contacted, the Public Health Committee would like to have additional hearings on both of these issues. Um, and they, we have requested that um, they be done at CDH Hospital. I have sent a request to the other co-chairs of public health. I have not yet heard back from them, but I'm hoping that we will continue to have this conversation because it's not enough for me um, to hear this executive order. That is not gonna fix anything. That does not fix the underlying cause of why the abuse occurred, how it was able to occur, how we're going to fix it going forward. And my big concern is the outcomes of the patients and the care for the patients and separating hospitals and calling it a hospital versus a prison and not having it licensed and putting in a new leadership team, I need the metrics and the evidence to show that these changes are going to change the outcomes for these people. That's what we are. That's why we have this facility. That's why we're supposed to be doing what we're doing is to help these folks get the care they need so they can assimilate back into the community. And, well, that's the and question Senator that's Summers, I, I would tell you that's what the recovering community wants to we want to be assured that that's going to happen. Senator Summers. And I think it's going to say an, it's going to need an oversight committee that's made up not just of 
the commissioner of Demas, but it's going to be made up of people outside of this facility, outside of Yale. I know that the commissioner comes from Yale and her friends and colleagues are all from Yale. And this is nothing against Yale, but I think we need to have outside viewpoints come in and look at this. Maybe we bring back former commissioners that have done previous work that have worked in her position so that we have an oversight board that can look at how we make the changes that need to be made to absolutely ensure nothing like this ever happens again and stains the state of Connecticut like it has. Senator uh, Senator Summers, you're also a legislator uh, having to deal with uh, fiscal constraints of the state. Are you worried that there will be a pending lawsuit from the family of William Shahadi? I have no doubt that there will be a pending lawsuit from William Shahadi. There's no doubt in my mind. I can't imagine there, there wouldn't be. Um, and yes, that puts us at risk. But if we had provided the type of care that we should be providing and the supervision that we should be having, none of this should have occurred. I will tell you that I asked for the complaint records of uh, employees that had worked at Whiting. And one of the things I found most startling is that the lead has been charged, I believe, with nine counts of cruelties against person was there was complaint after complaint after complaint on him and his the disposition of the complaint was counseling clearly the counseling did not work because he was one of the ones that's been charged with this egregious abuse against a you know a patient that's really at this point nonverbal and maybe 90 pounds senator summers so there, Unfortunately, we have to leave it there, but we do appreciate your perspective on this, you know, ongoing uh, issue and story that's important, not just to the family members of the patients at Whiting but uh, and CVH, but to the people of Connecticut who are, are funding yeah, this facility. Absolutely. I also absolutely. want to thank uh, Dr. Karen Kangas, a recovery advocate and co-conservator for William Shahadi. We thank you for joining us today thank as you. well. Uh, coming up, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to find out a little bit about why parents of a 21-year-old man with significant developmental delays left him at a local hospital, and he was left there for more than five months. How does this happen? We're going to find out after the break. 860-275-7266 if you want to join the conversation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now to a practice, an update on a practice that has impacted hospitals across the state. In recent years, there have been reports of youth and young adults with developmental and intellectual disabilities who've been left at ERs. Advocates say often the parents have no other choice when beds at residential facilities remain hard to come by. A recent story by the Currents' Josh Kovner highlights one of these cases where a 21-year-old autistic man was left at Manchester Memorial Hospital for more than five months. Joining me in studio, Nancy Alisberg, Legal Director of Disability Rights Connecticut. Nancy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Um, not a client of yours, but uh, explain a little bit of the, the context surrounding this particular situation of this 21-year-old autistic man who was abandoned uh, by his family at Manchester Memorial Hospital. Uh, it might be hard for people to understand how this can happen. Um, what would motivate a parent to do this? Well, I think the first thing I want to say is there's no blame on the parents. We are not looking at the parents as having done something bad. What they did was something out of sheer desperation. Um, they, as we understand it, were not receiving sufficient services um, that would allow them to care for this young man. He was a difficult young man. He still is a difficult young man. Um, he had behaviors that were hard 
to control. And they were hoping to get services from the, the service provider, the agency, DDS, Department of Developmental Services, that is charged with providing services to individuals with intellectual disabilities and who are on the autism spectrum. And they weren't getting the help that they needed. So they felt that if they took him to the hospital, he either could get the care that he needed at the hospital, which was a misunderstanding on their part, and that DDS would recognize that this was now an emergency and that they had to step in and provide care for this young man. Unfortunately, that's not what happened. And why does, why does that happen where <clears throat> DDS is not immediately involved? Our understanding, the reason that it does not happen is the definition of emergency, DDS's definition of emergency. In this particular instance, this young man had a roof, he had food, he was receiving what I would call custodial care by the hospital, and in that case, it's not an emergency. An emergency would only be a situation where somebody was not um, did not have a roof and was not did not have food. Only then would DDS come in and consider that to be an emergency. Um, this is what we're also seeing on the waiting list for parents who are waiting to have their children placed into group homes. If the parents are alive, it doesn't matter how old the parents are and how difficult it is for them to provide care for their loved one. If the parents are alive, it's not an emergency, and DDS will not provide a group home for that individual. Uh, I should say that we did get a statement from the chief of staff, uh, the, off the commissioner of the Department of Developmental Services, um, Katie Rock Burns writes that even when a situation is not formally declared an emergency by the department, which is DDS, we are, to the best of our knowledge, always involved in cases urgent enough to reach hospital emergency departments. Was that the case in this particular situation? Not as far as I understand. Um, I want to make it clear the information I have is from the hospital with a little bit of information from DDS. But the hospital was trying desperately to get DDS involved, to get DDS to make a plan so that this individual could be placed in an appropriate placement, and that's not what happened. There was some finger-crossing as to whether the family was providing the paperwork that was necessary. Family said they did. DDS said they didn't. That's not what's important right now. What would have been important was for this young man to receive appropriate services, and that wasn't happening. Uh, Nancy, again, Alice Berg, Legal Director of Disability Rights Connecticut. So what is the fix? Because the context of this is when we talk about uh, families not getting the services they need at a moment of crisis, some of them end up uh, leaving their child at the uh, hospital thinking they'll get the care, but it's not happening in all cases in the proper way, right, getting him connected, not languishing in, in a hospital. Um, the fix is because of budget cuts, less for these residential facilities that can help these families? I mean, it's all of the above. Um, we are planning on meeting with DDS to talk to them about it so that we can try to come up with a structure that will work so that people are not abandoned in emergency rooms and left to languish there in this case, which is obviously an extreme case, but for five months. Um, DDS has got to figure out how they're going to respond to emergencies in a timely manner so that people don't languish and that they do receive the kind of care and treatment that, that they need.
You mentioned the the waiting list. How many people are on that wait list? I'm not sure the exact number. It's in the thousands, and people have been on the waiting list for years, and it doesn't move. And the problem is that families don't know. They can't prepare their loved one for what's going to happen to them when mom and dad die. The parents are terrified because they don't know what's going to happen to their loved one. And it's a, it creates anguish for both sides, for the, for the loved one when the family finally does pass on and they're placed in a placement without any transition period, without having had an opportunity to work with their family, to get into this new placement. And the families, as I said, um, are terrified because they don't know what to expect for their loved one. I had mentioned that this, uh, this, this issue has gotten a lot of attention in recent years. Uh, even the legislature talking about it, Governor Malloy also addressing it in previous years um, with youth and others being left in emergency departments, but it's still happening. It is still happening. I think it's getting worse now because of the budget cuts, um, because there's been a lot of attention um, to the wait list. And so people think, well, I'm not going to sit around and wait. I'm going to do something now so that maybe we can make some plans. Unfortunately, that's not the way um, to move forward with getting a placement for your loved one, certainly not a planful placement, which is what we hope is going to happen. But I have seen this for many years, um, but I do think um, it's growing. The hospital, Connecticut Hospital Association reports that there is not a hospital in Connecticut that has not seen this problem. Oh, I mentioned uh, less, uh, fewer beds at residential facilities to help these families. Out-of-state facilities, is that an option? I assume the cost would go up for the state, right? Technically, it's an option, but it's not an option that anybody likes because it takes it, it tears families apart. the The goal is to keep individuals served in Connecticut and to remain as close to their families as possible. Out of state placements are by far a more restrictive placement and are the last resort. I want to thank Nancy Alisberg, Legal Director of Disability Rights Connecticut. Uh, really packed it in there. This is a very uh, complex, important issue. We hope to, to uh, come back to this issue during the legislative session to see what can be addressed. We thank you, And I Nancy. thank Senator Summers for being interested in this issue as well. Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Special thanks to producer Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. And thanks for listening.